As mentioned last week, we're taking a bit of a break from the Gospel to John. We'll revisit that uh, in the near future. So we're taking a few weeks to explore the Psalms. We did this last year, and this year we'll do it a little bit more. We're in Psalm 27. And if you remember when we looked at Psalm 27 last week, this is an expression of David's confidence in the Lord. Well, he was most likely, based on what historians can piece together, he was on the run for his life after King Saul knew that David was going to be the new anointed king, and Saul didn't like that news, and so he sought to end David's life. And so in the midst of this great hardship, in the midst of this uncertainty that David is in, he pens these words that we read that expresses an unwavering confidence in the Lord. We talked a little bit last week about fear, and fear is a very real, a very present enemy in our lives. I I made a comment offhandedly last week about the number of phobias that are out there. So I looked at it a little bit this week to try to get some clarity in my own mind about that. So technically, a phobia is considered an irrational fear of something. Thunder and lightning, dark. Chickens. There's a phobia. People are afraid of chickens. Now you can say, my friend, that's an irrational fear that you have, but you're not going to convince that person that a fear of chickens is irrational. So we all deal with fear in some form or fashion. Sometimes it's over the unknown, it's the uncertainty, it's disaster, it's sickness, it's the government, it's the financial system. Sometimes it's fear of rejection, it's fear of losing our jobs, it can be fear of criticism, fear of being rejected, fear of being alone, and really the list can go on and on and morph into unknown phobias that are unique to you about the kinds of things that seem to grip your life and cause you to wonder about the presence of the Lord, the purposes of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. So we need to be reminded that this fear does exist, and I want to repeat this, I said this last week, but fear exists most strongly in the absence of faith. People who don't have anything to really anchor their lives to, they don't have faith in anything of substance except those things that really breed a lot of uncertainty. Or people who say, I feel really good now about whoever it is that's in the White House. I feel really good now because the stock market's on the climb. I feel really good now, fill in the blank. But you see, as Christians, you and I have a unique ability to place our faith And the creator of this universe, knowing that he loves us, he has a plan and a purpose for us, and that he is always there. Let's read together Psalm 27, 1 through 14. We're going to talk specifically about 7 through 14 this morning, but I want to read the whole psalm so we can keep it in context. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. This is a look backwards at something that has happened in David's life already. Verse 3, present tense. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle, in the secret place of His tent. He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. 
And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Now, by way of review, very, very quickly... The first six verses that we looked at stated David's confidence in God's presence. He says that God is my light, God is my salvation, God is my refuge. These aren't things that God gives to us, although it would be accurate to say that God gives light. David says something very different from that. God is my light. Personally, God is what illuminates me. God is what illuminates my life. He is my salvation. He is my refuge, my safe place, my security. He is the one to whom I seek. He doesn't say I go to a safe place. God is His safe place. Because of this reality in David's life, and because this is our reality as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we can say with David, Whom shall I fear? Well, the reality is nothing and no one should cause us to fear, should cause us to doubt His presence, should paralyze our lives in such a way that we don't know how we're going to take a step forward. This is what we should be able to say as God's children. God, David says, my heart is at peace. And the one thing that I want, more than I want this encampment against me to go away, more than I want to be on the, on the, on the throne ruling as you have anointed me, the one thing that I desire more than anything else is more of you, God. I desire more of your presence. Now, you and I, typically, when we face these great difficulties in our lives, we want the difficulty to go away. We see God through our circumstance. And when we do that, our view of God is so distorted, so we want to take the circumstance away. We've got to reverse that. We've got to see our circumstances through the present reality of this God who loves us and has saved us so that we have perspective on the difficulty that we face and we won't be gripped by fear. David desires more of God because he recognizes that God is going to conceal him and hide him and lift him up. And as a result of that, David said, I am going to worship you. I am going to sing to you. Well, David has expressed great confidence in the presence of the Lord. But even with this confidence, there's still a very real and a very difficult battle that David is going to have to fight. So here in verse 7, the scene in the psalm shifts dramatically as we read these words of great confidence, and now we read these words that appear on its surface to be filled with great despair or questioning. Similarly to this, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus has an encounter where a young boy who is demon-possessed is brought to him, and he asks the father, how long has this been happening? He said, from his childhood. And at that moment, 
the demon threw the boy into a fit. So in Mark 9, 22 and 24, we read these words. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, and I love this, if you can, implied is do you know who I am? Are you really clear on what it is I can do? All things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. And I think this so perfectly paints the picture of the kind of difficulty you and I face in the midst of great spiritual battle. We have a theoretical understanding that God is and that God's on my side and I shouldn't be afraid But God help me in my unbelief because I'm really not convinced. So this is kind of the the sense that I get in this as I look at these words that David has penned for us. As humans, we can look back at the faithfulness of God. Can you do that? Can you look back and see all the many, many times God's been faithful to you? Where God made a way where there didn't seem to be a way. I didn't plan on sharing this. I remember when Marcy and I had been married six, seven months, and we were on getting ready to go to seminary, and we had a moving van in the parking lot, and we had most of our belongings there, and we had not signed the lease. We had quit our jobs, and I'm still calling the seminary say, where are we going to live? Where are we going to live? Where are we going to live? And they said, we don't know. We don't know. Well, we didn't know what was going to happen. But later that day, we got the call that said, hey, we got a place that just opened up. If you want to take it, it's yours. We're on the way. Next day, we, we drove all the way out to Texas and saw God provide what seemed to be impossible at the moment. So we have things like that in our lives that we can look back on that should be something that builds our faith, and yet we still have this tendency to doubt and to question, and we can be filled with unbelief, and fear. So this is David's dilemma. He believes, but in this next section, he is praying for God's reassurance because he does not possess perfect faith. Guess what? We don't either, right? We don't possess perfect faith. We are going to wander at times. We are going to question at times. And so it's psalms like these that we can go back to and say, yeah, I want to be as confident in the presence of the Lord as David was. So we're going to move now into these next few verses that express the prayer that David is going to make. And he is going to be confident in God's provision. There are four primary requests that David makes in this section. You could probably make it more than that, but they really kind of fit into categories. And so there's, there's four parts to this request and the confidence and the provision that David has that God will give to him. The first one is, very simply, listen to me. It is, it is a request, but it's a request that is undergirded by David's confidence in the Lord. Verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me, and answer me. You will notice the humility that David has in this request. He simply pleads that God would hear him. David is suffering. He's on the run. He's likely sleeping in caves. He's probably underfed. He's probably exhausted. Doesn't really know who he can trust. Doesn't know where he can turn other than 
the Lord. He didn't choose these circumstances for himself. He didn't do anything to bring this circumstance upon him. It is the byproduct of the sinfulness of man. Saul, God's anointed, is seeking to end David's life, the newly appointed king, because he's threatened by him. And so David cries out to the Lord to be heard. He seeks the graciousness of God for an answer. Hear me. In your grace, answer me. David understands that God is not obligated to do anything, but he still seeks to be heard to receive this gracious response from the Lord that reassures him of God's presence. Now, you and I today live with that same kind of tension in our life, squeezed between the circumstances of life and the graciousness of God, seeking His help, needing to hear from Him, but not necessarily hearing it as quickly as we would like. Isn't that right? We can rest assured that God always hears and always answers the prayers of His children. Always. That doesn't mean he always says yes. Right? Doesn't mean he always says no. Sometimes he says not yet. In God's grace, he says yes. In God's grace, he says no. In God's grace, he says not yet. Wait. Now we may not always agree with that. We might feel like God's being a little hard, a little insensitive and uncaring because I'm having to wait. Well, as an extension of this request to be heard, David states the reason that he believes that God should hear him. In verse 8, he says, When you said, God, when you said to me, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. So we need to hear what what God has said to David in the past. And not just David, but the nation of Israel. And not just the nation of Israel, but all of God's children. God says, seek my face. Seeking the face of God doesn't mean that we aren't able to ask for His provision. It doesn't mean that we can't bring our needs to Him which is one of the great privileges that we have, is we can come to the King of Kings and make requests to Him, but it means that seeking the face of God is the most important thing. And this is what David is underscoring. You said, seek my face, and my heart said to you, O Lord, I shall seek your face. We should seek the face of God in good times, in hard times, all of the time we ought to seek God's face. God has told David to seek His face, And David's response is that my heart said to you, God, your face is what I'm going to seek. What does it mean to seek the face of God? How would you explain that to someone who says, you know, I've heard that said. I'm a young believer. I don't know a lot of the Bible. But what does it really mean to seek the face of God? What does it mean for you? When you get really serious about your relationship with God, what do you do to seek the face of God? Is it large amounts of Bible reading? Is it large amounts of prayer? Is it large amounts of biblical counseling? What do you do to seek the face of God? Notice what David says, is that my heart said to you, not my head, not the immediacy of the problem I'm facing, 
But my heart, in my inmost being, my heart said, yes, Lord, your face is what I'm going to seek. My whole self. You know, the New Testament command is to love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. With your everything, we are to love the Lord. Well, in David's, it is David's position that since he has sought the face of God, he has solid footing to ask God to listen to him and to be gracious to him and to answer him. I want you to think about it like this. You've got children, you've got parents, maybe some of you still have parents that are alive. What was it like when you had a strained relationship with your children or with your parent? How willing were you to go and sit before them and ask them of something that maybe to you felt a little out of the ordinary? Probably not very willing, right? Probably a little reluctance on that. Well, maybe I'll wait till they're in a really good mood. Maybe I'll wait until this seems to have passed and then I can go. Well, when you have a great relationship with your children or with your parents and there isn't the strain and the friction and the tension that exists in those relationships, you likely feel a lot more inclined to go to them and say, hey, I've got something I need. So it's the same way in our walk with God. When we are walking with Him in a way that pleases Him in every manner that we can think of, we tend to have a lot more confidence in seeking requests from Him. Well, the prerequisite for making requests to God is that we have been seeking after Him in a personal, intimate relationship. To seek the face of God is a very different thing than seeking the hand of God. I've said this before. My name is Jimmy, and I want all you can give me, right? You're here at my disposal. I've got a big need, and you're a big God. Yeah, I haven't been doing what I ought to have been doing. I'm probably not going to do what I know I should be doing. But hey, you're God. You're the big Santa Claus, so give me what I need, right? That's not seeking the face of God. That is using God for something that really isn't responsible, and it totally ignores the reality that God's desire is that He have our heart. So David says, Your face I have sought with all of my heart. As we see in verse 12, David does have a very specific request that he's going to make, and we'll look at that in just a few moments. He wants God to deliver him from his enemies, but I can assure you, if David had not been a man after God's own heart, he likely would not have asked that in the same way that he did. My speculation. Number two in the request that David makes here, he asks God to reveal himself to me. God, reveal yourself to me. Verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. What David wants more than anything else is he wants to see a manifestation of God's presence in his life. Say that another way. David wants to see God at work. David wants to see God do what only God could do. David wants to see God come in and rescue him as he has in the past because he has sought the Lord with all of his heart. I believe in this psalm, this verse best expresses the reality of our spiritual battle when we're in difficult times. We need to see the physical manifestation of God's presence. When we're in these tight spots, it can feel like God isn't there. 
We can fear that he isn't there. You know, there are segments within Christianity that claim to be Christians that believe that God is detached. That God has just wound up this planet that we live on and just let it do what it's going to do. But you see, you and I know different. We have a God who loves us and is intimately acquainted with every facet of our life and desires to meet our needs physically, spiritually, and emotionally as only He can. Have you ever felt this way before? God, where are you? Have you ever feared that God isn't in the midst of your hardship and your difficulty? You see, we need to be reminded that God is always near and He always understands our need. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says in verses of chapter 4, 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you go before the Lord with confidence? Do you run up into the lap of God and say, I'm so glad you're here. I love you. I want to know more of you. I want to please and honor you. David expresses this fear with the words, do not hide from me. Do not turn away from me in anger. Do not abandon me. To hide is to be removed from God's blessings. And that's the tension that David has. Until this encampment is removed, I feel like I'm cut off from your blessings. Yet I know that's not really true. I have to fight against what I feel. To turn away in anger is the fear that perhaps David has done something that has angered God. So David pleads with God, seeks his face and says, what have I done? Is there anything I need to confess? Am I not walking right with you? Now to be sure, our sin separates us from our fellowship with God, not our relationship. It separates us from our fellowship with God. It can keep us from experiencing the reality of God's presence, which is always there. When we're truly seeking His face, God will reveal to us the barrier, the unconfessed sin, the lesson that He's wanted us to learn, and then we will experience the reality of His presence all around us. In restoring us back to fellowship, we can be assured that God isn't angry with us, He's forgiven us. He's cleansed us. He's made us right before Him. This idea of don't abandon me, it's to leave David to himself. Remember what he said in the earlier verses, you are my light, you are my salvation, you are my refuge. So for David to be abandoned, it means that he had no help. He had no safe place. He had no one to hide him, no one to protect him, no one to cover him. Have you ever considered what it would be actually like to be abandoned by God? To be totally cut off from God's presence, have zero God consciousness, zero God interest. You remember the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? The Christmas movie and George Bailey blurts out a prayer he wished he'd never been born and the angel comes down and shows him what his quaint little town would be like had he not ever been born. And what was this lovely place to raise a family has devolved into this evil, sin-ridden, vice-ruled community that nobody really wants to be in, but they have no way out. Well, in a similar way, 
in a much worse way. Our lives would devolve into hopeless despair if we had been cut off, abandoned by the Lord. But see, this is our fight. This is our battle. This is our tension, is to claim the promise that you and I can come boldly to the throne of grace knowing that God is there. And He cares. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He doesn't wag His hand in self-righteous judgment. He understands. He gets it. And He desires to bathe His children in mercy and grace in our time of need. David declares that God has been His helper, that God is His salvation, and the thought of being abandoned by God is more than he could even imagine. Now in verse 10, we see the confidence that David has in this request, even in the midst of his crying out to God. Verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Now most commentators would say that this isn't a literal abandonment by David's parents. If you remember when we studied the Psalms last summer, when you were the anointed king of Israel, you became the son of God. And so in this sense, God is now functioning as the parent of the king, and his parents have abandoned his, their son to God. They have turned him over to God to be in God's care. This is most likely what it means when David says, my parents have abandoned me. Some would say the word for would be better translated as the word if. If my parents abandon me, I still have confidence the Lord is going to take me up. Now, God doesn't say this, but what David says is that God is going to be with me because He is going to be the one that takes me up. To take Him up is the opposite of being abandoned. It is an affirmation that God will always be with him in all of his life circumstances. And even if, God forbid, my parents were to abandon me, I know that God is going to be there to take care of me in the gap. The third request that David makes in this petition here is, teach me. I think this is really important. I think we need to focus on this as we read this request that, that David is making to the Lord. He says in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. At the core of David's crying out to God, what he wants more than anything else is God's presence, and he wants God to teach him. The common, the normal, and the human response to great hardship is not teach me, O God, but it's why, O oh God, why would you let something like this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? In my equation, God, it seems like this is unjust and unfair. But that's not what David's saying at all. He doesn't lament the hardship. He asks God to teach him. Teach me your ways and lead me on a level path. You know, his ways are not like our ways, are they? His purposes are not like our purposes. His desires are not like our desires. And nothing reveals to us this reality like difficult circumstances do. In the midst of them, we would do well to ask God to teach me and lead me on a level path. David is saying, I want you to teach me and I want you to guide me through my journey of life and that journey is going to be on a level path, meaning it's free from the presence of these evildoers who seek to end his life. 
God wants to teach us many, many, many things. We read a lot about God. We read a lot of his word, and we understand what it means intellectually. But I'll tell you what, when the rubber hits the road and our faith gets squeezed, it reveals to us how much we really know. And so God wants to teach us many things, and he will often use difficult circumstances to cause us to cry out to him so that we can be teachable. In James chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know what endurance is, right? It's that stick to It's that never going to give up. It's going to make it to the end. That's what difficulties do. That's why James could say, consider it joy when you encounter various trials because it's going to produce endurance in your faith. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's not a perfect walk with God. It's not sinless perfection. It's the, it's the sufficiency of God to meet your need in Himself. That's what it means. That's what it's all about. God, no matter what I face, you're sufficient. No matter how hard this is, you're sufficient. No matter how much I want this to go away, you're sufficient. That is having a complete faith in God in this time of need. Like this, Romans chapter 8, 28, 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Not all things that happen to us are good. But he works together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29 is the key here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That is God's purpose in the difficulties that you and I face. It is so we would be conformed to the image of his Son. We're not going to get that just by reading the Word. We're going to get that by understanding how much we really need to walk with the Lord. So when we're in these difficult circumstances, we will either cooperate with God's purposes and God's desires and God's methods, or we're going to rebel. We will either run to Him, or our circumstances will push us away from Him. Now, the reality is, we get to choose that. Nobody can make that choice for you. You can be encouraged. You can be exhorted. You can be counseled. But in the end, you're the one that has to make the choice to run to Him, to seek His face when you're in the midst of great difficulty. So David asked God to leave him on a level path, one that is free from these evil men. Like that, you and I have many, many, many spiritual battles and spiritual enemies in front of us that we don't yet see, very difficult hardships and circumstances that we may not yet know about. But with God's help, we can find the victory that God has for us in Him. Not in them. In Him. You know, it's unfortunate that some people will get a terminal diagnosis and they will turn their back on God as if God has been unjust and unfair. But you see, in the midst of a terminal diagnosis, there's still victory in Him. Why? Because He is my light. He is my salvation. He is my refuge. This is what David has in mind with this final request. Verse 4, deliver me. We need to ask for God to deliver us from these spiritual enemies that we face. Those things that cause us to doubt and to wonder, and to be gripped with fear, 
just as David asks for relief from these physical enemies that he faces. Verse 12, Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. These evil, violent, lying men want to kill him, and he's asking God to protect him from them. There's nothing wrong with us to ask God to protect us from the evil that is out there and is going to influence and affect us. But we would be very misguided to think that we may never suffer unjustly at the hands of sinful men. We may suffer through no fault of our own, but we can still find victory in Him and find sufficiency for whatever it is that we face. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to God's children. But we can be assured that God is still there. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will see us through the bad times. As we seek His face, we will find sufficiency in Him. In our spiritual battles, God will also be with us. He's given us Himself through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And He has provided us with spiritual armor to battle these spiritual forces that are around us. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord, not in yourself. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, not in pop psychology, not in what mom and dad think, but be strong in the Lord and in the strength that He provides in Himself as you seek His face. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. David was assured of God's deliverance. He believed with all his heart that God was going to rescue him and protect him from these evil men, and that's exactly what God did. Verse 13, David says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Both of these are past tense as he talks about his present circumstance. Do you see that there? you see what David says here? Despair in the absence of faith is our reality if we don't seek Him. If we can't hold on to the anchor that is God, then we're going to be gripped by fear. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is a lot more than trying to psychologically convince ourselves of something to be true. This is David's strong conviction in the presence of the Lord and in the goodness of the Lord that he was going to rescue him. God would rescue him from this physical enemy that he faced. But now we notice the most difficult element for us and probably for David, and that's Roman numeral three. Confidence in his timing. Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. You know, David waited 14 years before he actually sat on the throne. 14 years. Abraham waited 25 years before the promised heir was born to him. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and wait. 
Let me see a show of hands. How many of you like to wait? Well, somebody's not telling the truth because nobody raised their hand. We loathe waiting. Not in traffic, not in the store, not in the doctor's office, not on the phone when we're on hold, not anywhere, not ever do we like to wait. But most especially when we're waiting for the manifestation of God's presence to do what only He can do. I read this in a book years ago, and I've not forgotten it. The only thing worse than waiting for God is wishing that you did. The only thing worse than waiting for God is wishing that you did. We are a very impatient people with an expectation of immediacy. You know, it's not like walking up to the microwave and popping a thing of corn in, in two minutes. God doesn't work that way. We often think that God needs our help because He's been so slow to act. Perhaps I've misunderstood. Perhaps He's waiting for me, so I'm going to take this into my own hands and I'm going to fix it myself. Have you ever done that? I did that made a bigger mess. The only thing worse than waiting for God was wishing that you did. But just... We just need to understand that our impatience, our trying to do things our own way, imposing our timetable on God will not harmonize with His timeline and with His purposes. God's strength is going to be made real in our weakness. And oftentimes we're weak when we're waiting. Waiting reveals our true faith. And waiting will either drive us to God or push us away. But again, the choice is always ours. As you think about the difficulty that you have faced, and as you look back at how you responded to that, there should be some lessons in there, right? As you think about what it is that currently grips your heart with fear, what lessons can you learn from the past that you can apply to the present? And what about those uncertainties and unknowns that are out there somewhere down the road that we can't even envision? What will we do when they come? You know, it's not a matter of if they'll come, it's when they come. What we do is our choice. Would you join me in prayer? Well, God, we thank you that we have so much past experience to build our faith in you. And even when our experience is light, we can look at your faithfulness through the words that you've written to us in the Holy Bible, your infallible and errant word that will last for eternity. We can see your faithfulness over and over and over. God, I pray that you would reassure us, remind us of your presence, that you would grow our faith in the difficult times. I pray that we would be a body of believers who encourage one another, who empathize with one another, who lift up one another in prayer for the hardships when they come. God, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We confess to you that we are many times faithless people. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. God, we thank you for the great love you have for us. We thank you for the long-suffering and the patience with such a difficult people. I pray that our desire would be like David's, to know you more, 
to have you teach us your ways and to walk safely in your shadow, knowing that you're always there every step of the way, no matter how dark it seems to us. You are my light. We give you thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand and worship him.